Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast featuring global influencers in accessibility, inclusion, and universal design. Here's your host, Jamie Lassner. Welcome to Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast. I am happy to welcome Jonathan Marriott, Director of Accessibility Advisory Services at the Rick Hansen Foundation and uh, Accessibility Certification. And that's, I think, the first question I'm going to throw out uh, at you, Jonathan. First of all, good morning and thank you. Um, good morning. I'm thrilled uh, you're joining us. So, um, first of all, how did you get involved in the space? Why did you choose to get involved in a, an area of accessibility? Well, it's a delight to talk to you today, Jamie, and it's a great question, and it's a story that I tell often. So when I think back to accessibility, my grandmother, uh, my paternal grandmother, had multiple disabilities, but I noticed she was different. However, in terms of the accommodations that we used to have to provide her, it felt that those were just a grandmother-grandson relationship. It would involve things like gassing up her car, opening medicine bottles, um, doing chores around the house for her. But it wasn't until probably around 2015 plus that I kind of really entered the world of accessibility and understood that the barriers in the built environment, the systemic barriers and barriers that we have introduced were actually the reason that my grandmother needed these accommodations. An example of that was, she was no longer able to stay in her home any longer because she wasn't able to drive and she wasn't able to use the bus purely because she didn't have fine motor skills to access um, the money and to give the change to the driver and the driver wasn't able to take a bill to break it. So that barrier, the fact that the bus wouldn't take uh, or wouldn't facilitate or accommodate her meant that she had to move out of her community where she'd lived for over 20 years and go into um, a care facility, which was closer to where the family was based. Then my one of my very close friends, when we first met, didn't have a disability, and then she did have a disability. And our relationship started to change, not because of our relationship, but because of the barriers in the built environment. And with my really close friend, I started to see how, because of the barriers in the built environment, our relationship was changing, but also so was her interaction. And she was slowly kind of disappearing from the community and the social circles because of these barriers. And the same thing had happened to my grandmother, except my grandmother was in her 90s at this point, whereas my friend was not even 30. So it was then when I um, really kind of understood about the barriers to accessibility. Uh, I moved to Australia. Um, where accessibility is a certified profession there. I was able to study um, accessibility. And I worked in Australia before moving uh, over to Canada and working for the Rick Hansen Foundation with our certification. Okay, and a little about the Rick Hansen Foundation, which I found interesting looking at their website over the last couple of days. There's the aspect of the Rick Hansen uh, Foundation, which is basically the organization made a commitment to making Canada, uh, Canada accessible for all. But there's two aspects to what I saw. Number one, on the website itself, it shows um, buildings that have been certified by the Rick Hansen Foundation. 
I want to talk about that. And then um, what enamored me to to the work you do is the work you do in in the travel industry. So let's start with the buildings. Um, we talk about the term, and we use it a lot, uh, universal uh, accessibility. In your work, can you define that? And what does it mean for the buildings that you approve to be universally accessible? Sure, it's a great question. So when we look at um, accessibility, so we take a meaningful approach uh, towards accessibility and a holistic standpoint. So what does that actually mean? Well, we know that people need to interact with their buildings, whether you're on the 17th floor of a downtown office building or whether you're traveling through an airport, a person doesn't just land in that area. A person has to travel there. Do they use a mobility device? Do they get public transit? Do they arrive in a car? And when they do arrive, what does that journey look like? So we know that universal design benefits all of us. There's a common misconception that it's only kind of for people with disabilities or um, the older population. And we know that's not the case. And the reason why is, let's take a power door, for example. A power door benefits everyone. By having a power door at the entrance to a building, it benefits people using a mobility device. It benefits people who have a stroller, people traveling with luggage, people making a delivery. Um, and people who have their hands full with groceries. So it really is taking that approach in terms of universal design to a, a building and looking at how it can benefit all of our population. Another example is things like um, not having a level change in a building. So when you go into a building, not having a couple of steps down when you enter it, again, it benefits anyone who's going into that building. So that really is kind of the, the center of how we approach accessibility uh, in relation to the built environment. So within a building, what are the biggest, um, let's say, stumbling blocks for a building to become accessible? And when should that plan start? Is that after the building is built or do you start talking to architects before? So a great question. So we approach it from best uh, from two ways. The best way is to get in as early as possible. We know we've had independent studies um, conducted and to introduce minimum accessibility features within a building, there is no additional cost to the overall construction. But it's really important to get in there early to increase the accessibility within a site and provide um, additional features, things like tactile indicators at the top of stairs to alert uh, people who may be using a white cane that there's a level change ahead, or installing a hearing loop for people who are using a T-coil hearing device. Having those um, additional factors, their clusters are gold certification, having them incorporated with the design phase only adds as little as 1% to the overall building cost. We know that retrofitting buildings can be extremely expensive. However, there's also a misconception that when we talk about accessibility, people think that it's only centered around really expensive things, such as installing an elevator, as an example, which can be $50,000 plus. However, it doesn't have to be those expensive items. The example I gave before, installing a power door, that can be as low as $1,500 as an example, but that could really change the world for someone, ensuring that our community is able to independently access um, the building and the home that they live in um, really is priceless. There are other examples as well that can have actually almost no cost associated with it. Those could be things like 
installing color contrasting strips on glazing to alert people who may have low vision um, that there is a potential hazard with the glazing ahead. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that you said at the beginning of the question, which was uh, or the answer, excuse me, which was I found very interesting. Um, and there's always a pushback that that we receive when we talk to architects, wherever they may be, is no, it's going to be so much added cost. If you get in there at the beginning of the construction uh, and the pre-discussions, you can tell them, don't put in a tub, put in a walk-in shower. Um, and that probably can save them a couple of bucks, if anything. Uh, they just have to put in a floor that's on a slight angle so that it drains properly. So I find that very interesting and something that people should be aware of. Um, now I want to go to what what we talked about a lot at uh, our leadership conference uh, in Israel, and I found extremely interesting about what you uh, uh, what you do, uh, and you said this several times at the conference. So I'm going to ask you to do the same. I don't want to know about a specific airport, but what I do want to know is, and and I think also the the people listening should know. What is involved from the time a person is in their apartment to the time they are comfortably seated on the plane to make it fully accessible? And what do you what are you doing in, let's call it certain airports that we don't want to divulge to make that really big difference? A great question. And um, it's a topic that I'm really passionate about. So I do specialize with accessibility in the built environment. However, my passion does center around transportation and in particular airports. Um, I travel a lot. I've always traveled um, a lot. And airports really are the gateway for so many people, but also they are a huge barrier for some people as well. So when we look at um, airports and to your point around from um, looking at how a person starts their journey until they're seated on the plane. So with our um, rating survey that we use, uh, which um, takes into consideration universal design principles, international best practice, as well as um, incorporating the feedback from a wide variety of different interest groups, um, including people with lived experience. We, we have different categories that we go across. So it starts with vehicular access, going through to exterior path of travel, the entrance, looking at what does interior circulation look like and through the services, sanitary um, features, as well as wayfinding. So in an actual airport, what does that look like? So we um, look at how a person may arrive at the airport. So in our rating survey, it's over 300 pages. Um, so there's a wide variety of different um, criteria that we look at. But if we um, start the journey, we'll look at how a person arrives at the site, whether they are being dropped off, whether they're arriving in a taxi, using public transit, and really what that journey looks like. We are really centered around providing independent access for people. People don't want to have to book um, in advance. People don't want to have to rely on um, the support of other people or accommodations due to poor design. People want to be to receive equitable and dignified treatment. So we look at the arrival points. It might be um, vehicular access as an example. So if, let's say they, they drive their car and they park at the airport. We'd look at that path of travel. But before we get to that, we'd look at what do the parking facilities look like? Are there designated accessible car parking? Um, when a person arrives, is there an elevator so a person is able to um, travel uh, with luggage? Also, if they're using a wheeled mobility device, 
once they arrive at the airport and the exterior approach, is it um, logical, the layout when a person arrives? What does that look like? We then go through really stage by stage, each um, area and each touch point, a person is expected to interact, such as the check-in desk, then when someone goes through uh, the TSA area, looking at what that looks like. We also include all features such as um, duty-free or any lounge areas as well, because one thing that we do take into consideration is people want to receive equitable and dignified treatment with the vast majority of all of the services on offer. People don't want to say that this is your designated route and you're only able to travel in, in one um, area. So we also, as I mentioned before, rate things like the sanitary uh, features, the restrooms, um, and also the wayfinding. What does that look like? Uh, we take into consideration the emergency uh, features of a site. For example, um, are there visual fire alarms for people who may be hard of hearing? And we do this through the lens of three um, key areas of disability, and that is through the lens of mobility, vision and hearing. We also look at any additional space. So we don't only um, rate the buildings from a passenger point of view in this instance, but we also look at employees who work within the um, airport. What, what would you say right now is the biggest barrier or pushback um, that you see from airports? Like, yeah, we can do this, we can do that, but that is going to be difficult. One of the biggest areas that I see are systemic issues. And what I mean by that is the, the airport itself may have incorporated good design practices. So, for example, no level changes, allowing a person uh, to travel throughout the airport uh, without having to get in an elevator, for example. However, when people get to the gate, the responsibility very often changes and it becomes the airline. We know that there are so many different airlines out there and the vast majority of them all have different policies when it comes to people actually boarding the aircraft. That is a key area where I see so many barriers and it really is disappointing because it feels very much that the airport and the airlines don't have a linked up approach. So the barriers really do kind of end up at the aircraft door where there may not be the correct policies, there may not be the correct training, there may not be the correct facilities for a person to actually board that aircraft. So I think that would be the biggest area where I see um, barriers in terms of the, the lack of joined up thinking, the lack of integration, and also the fact that I see a lot um, of passing the buck. So is it the airport's responsibility? Is it the passenger's responsibility? Is it a third party contractor who provides, uh, for example, um, mobility devices within the airport? So that's the biggest one. And also the lack of staff training. In relation to the actual airports and the biggest um, barriers that we see, um, I would say that some of them, again, are procedural. Um, however, some of them are really small barriers that just haven't been taken into consideration. So, for example, not having enough accessible washrooms or only having accessible washrooms at um, different ends of the terminal, which may be difficult uh, for a passenger to one, either locate or even two, to access if they have limited mobility. The, the, uh, the one thing that we have definitely seen, and I agree with what you're saying, is uh, I've traveled with friends who have disabilities, and it's that they get to the door, the door of the gate, and from there, 
uh, uh, possibility number one is the wheelchair is taken. They're put on a, on a wheelchair that they barely fit on, and then they're not carefully put onto their seat, not taking into consideration any devices that they may be wearing to make their lives easier. Um, but the second and most painful to me, or equally painful, is when they get to their destination, the wheelchair is either broken or doesn't operate, and then they offer a quote-unquote airport wheelchair that is not similar to uh, what they have as well. So that's a, that's a really big difficulty in travel. Now I'm going to ask um, a question which I know the answer to, you know the answer to, but I, you know, I want our listeners to hear. What is the advantage for an entire family who wants to go on vacation to have all of this universal? universal airports, universal hotels on islands, on tourist destinations? Again, a great question. So when accessibility isn't provided, effectively what a business or an organisation is saying to someone is, you're not welcome here. This area is not for you. Adopting universal design not only incorporates, you know, dignified um, and equitable access for people with disabilities, but it applies to everyone. At some point during everyone's life, we will experience um, our accessibility being impacted. This could be because of a sporting injury. It could be because of a disability. It could be as well because of different environmental um, attributes. I travel a lot and um, English is uh, my first language. I don't speak any other languages fluently. So when I go to um, certain areas, because the fact that I don't speak any other languages, I can be limited um, reading signage, as an example. Incorporating symbols on signage. So for example, think of an elevator, having an elevator symbol or a washroom. These are things that we see every, every day. It really benefits everyone. So not just uh, people who have additional accessibility requirements. Incorporating these aspects into design does benefit so many different um, demographics as well as users. Um, I kind of spoke about in the beginning, um, adopting universal design principles such as having uh, a power door operator is going to benefit everyone, particularly in the travel industry when people are traveling with luggage, but also it benefits the employees of the site, the people who are making deliveries, the FedEx delivery that comes in, the food delivery and so on. It also provides flexibility in use as well by incorporating um, universal design principles. A really quick example that I can give you on this is think about a door handle, a lever style door handle versus a door knob. When I say door knob, what I'm referring to is a circular style. So adopting a lever style device has flexibility in use. So the reason why this is beneficial, this universal design principle, is it can be um, operated in the traditional manner, a person using their hand, a person could use their elbow, a person could use their cane, a person could have their assistance animal open it. So it really does provide a greater um, flexibility, whereas compared with a doorknob, which may be a barrier to so many different users, particularly those who may not have fine motor skills um, to navigate the doorknob, such as my grandmother, um, or even a person who has their arms full, uh, maybe with luggage or groceries or hold, holding a child, so they're able to um, enter the room. Uh, at the beginning of the conference, when I met you a couple about a year and a half ago, um, and, and, have, and I've talked to you since, is, um, and, and I would say this about a lot of the leaders, is that you are a person that 
um, have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but you recognize that you're always, you know, there's always plenty of room to learn. From your experiences at airports, which is your forte, uh, and something that I that I get frustrated about as well, and I'm so thrilled that you're in that that space. In the last two years, have you gone into an airport and noticed something like, hmm, that's something we should add to the list as making it more accessible? Yeah, I um, I travel probably every other week. So I go through a lot of airports. One, um, one initiative, if you want to call it that, that I saw, which again, going back to our universal design principles, it's something that you might, a person might not immediately identify that it benefits um, from an accessibility point of view. Um, but there is one airport, major airport in New York, which uh, I'm sure there's other airports around as well, which have this. Effectively, it is like a delivery, food delivery service, but within the airport. So think about an Uber Eats or a Skip the Dishes or whatever app that you use, but this is within the airport itself. So a person is able to remain at their gate, for example, and go on this app and they're able to order food. Um, to them. Why this is beneficial? Well, one, it benefits everyone. Uh, anyone can use it. A person using their smartphone uh, may have assistive technology within their smartphone. So again, in terms of that flexibility and use, it's really open up. But also, it can remove the barriers for so many people, thinking about people maybe who have reduced mobility, people who are part of the neurodivergent community and want to avoid going to those busy food court areas, or a person um, who maybe doesn't have cash with them, as an example, and wants to pay um, on their credit card and have the food delivered. Again, like I said, it's not something that would be immediately identified as an accessibility need, um, but the fact that um, there is this technology, um, it does really support like a wide range of users. If we look at, you know, specifics around an airport uh, and what that looks like, um, I think one of the, um, the best things that I have seen are the different attributes which facilitate independent access for people. And what I mean specifically um, around that, I've seen a lot of work recently um, which supports people who have um, low vision or who are blind. The introduction of um, tactile indicators, so people using a white cane are able to independently travel um, to the air through the airport. Um, the fact that there is flexibility now in terms of the announcements. It's not only provided from an audible perspective, but people can receive text messages. People can also use wayfinding apps within the facility themselves, again, supporting a wide range uh, of different users. So I think for me with airports, because they're such a huge, vast space, some people are passing through them you know, every other week, uh, like myself, or some people may only go there maybe once every few years. Having this additional technology supporting them, for example, the wayfinding app, is a, a person is able to plan their journey. They're able to um, look at what facilities are on offer for them, and they can plan ahead, knowing where the washroom is, knowing where a seat is, uh, and so on. So I think that all of those um, aspects from a te technological perspective, allowing a person to plan their journey and also potentially preempt any barriers uh, which they may be facing once they arrive there. Can you define what tactile marking is and why it's so important? 
Sure. So tactile markings um, are probably things that people uh, come across every day, but they may not um, immediately identify them. So there's a few different um, tactile um, markings out there. So one of them are tactile um, attention indicators. So these are installed um, on the floor and they are um, often kind of referred to, if you, if I was just describe them, they look like little bumps which are installed in the sidewalk. These are installed to alert a person who um, is using a white cane or has low vision that there is a potential hazard ahead or that there is a potential level change. So these are the um, attention indicators. There are also um, tactile walking surface indicators. And what these are, these are um, kind of, um, they look like mini railroads is the best way of kind of describing them, kind of tracks. Um, and they are um, installed on the ground. Um, and it facilitates a person using a white cane in terms of independently travel at uh, traveling. So a person is able uh, to follow the path of travel in between these kind of two tracks, um, but the tracks are very um, low to the ground. So they don't kind of um, cause a tripping hazard for other users. Tactile indicators are also um, provided um, at things like um, the subway, as an example, to alert a person that um, there is a potential hazard, you know, being the, the railroad in front of them. Uh, I hope to interview you in five years. What are the three changes, two or three changes you would love to see in the next five years vis-a-vis -vis the work you do? That's a really great question. I said this to all of them. That one is a really great question. I think the first one for me would be a greater consideration in terms of um, universal design considerations in the built environment for a greater range of disabilities. Um, the UK is one of the only countries in the world that has a design standard which considers the neurodivergent community. So this was released in, I think it was October of last year. So it's really exciting to see this out there. But as I mentioned earlier, um, the vast majority of standards and guidelines do centre around mobility, vision and hearing. So my first would be a greater consideration of these um, different disabilities. The next would really be, and we've started to see, to see this, even since I've been working in the um, accessibility industry, and it's that benchmark increasing. So whatever was kind of um, a minimum five years ago is now completely dropped off and the bar has risen. What was considered an innovation 10 years ago is now almost minimum standard. So I really want to see the trajectory of that continue. And I really want to see code go beyond the minimums. So code quite often is the bare minimum and it doesn't suffice for all users. For example, the width of um, a doorway, for example, it may not accommodate um, different size of mobility devices. So I really want to see a change within legislation, which ensures that all of our community is able to participate. 
Lastly, and one thing that really bugs me, and I, I really don't even like the word that is used, is around adaptable housing. So, so often I will hear um, that someone is providing or advertising that they maybe, maybe it's a condo, for example, or apartment block, and they have adaptable housing, and they may market it that it is suitable uh, to accommodate the needs of a wheelchair user, for example. However, it's not really the full story what they're saying is the suite can be adapted to suit this person but from the outset and the message and their narrative that they're giving out is they really are kind of providing I don't want to say false information but it's not really the goods that they're providing it's not an accessible suite it's a suite which can be made accessible at the cost of the person that purchases it I really think that that should be made unlawful in terms of that kind of advertising um, and my hope would be that these universal design principles which benefit all of us are incorporated into um, designs from the get-go so we don't have um, someone saying that oh yes this suite is accessible yet you need to spend thirty thousand dollars on renovations to get it to that place um, i agree with you also using the two terms that we've been talking about uh, a lot universal legislation. Uh, one of the things that we have in New York here is obviously we, we follow the ADA, the bare minimum. Uh, you in Canada are taking a step a little higher. You at the foundation have definitely taken it much higher. But when we travel and certainly travel outside the country and someone says, okay, we're going to an accessible hotel, there has to be a global definition of what accessible means. There has to be a, glo a global definition of one uh, universal means. Um, and the, the question that I always close with is, why should anybody listening to this podcast get involved in the space of working with people with disabilities? So again, um, a really important question to consider. So here in Canada, I can um, give you statistics from here. So one in five of us um, has a disability. And it's almost actually one in four with the latest stats. However, when we know um, or when we consider people who may interact with a person with disabilities, and what I mean by that, in my instance, for example, my grandmother, a member of my family, my closest friend, um, maybe a work colleague, when we consider that aspect, one in uh, every two people interacts with a person with a disability. We also know that at uh, when a person reaches the age of 65 or older, the um, statistics go down to one in three people having a disability. We know that people are living longer. We know that people want to remain in their homes for longer. We also know that people want to receive equitable and dignified treatment. They don't want someone else to make decisions for them. They don't want to rely on people. People want to uh, receive the same treatment. And we all need to be part of that conversation. D the disability um, community is the largest minority group in the world, but it is also one of the only minority groups that any of us can become a part of at any moment during our lives. It really is important that we all kind of approach this together because we know that when we operate in silos, 
things are not connected. Let's take the airport example. A person may arrive in the airport, but they can't actually board the aircraft at that final point. We all need to have conversations. We need to continue to learn, but also we need to move forward together. Um, so I would encourage everyone to um, approach accessibility from that perspective, from that universal design uh, lens point, and really appreciate that good design benefits to all of us is not just for specific people within our communities. Jonathan is a leader in the uh, accessibility space. And uh, for us who are a bit older than him, it is truly a pleasure to learn from him. Thank you, Jonathan. And I look forward to seeing you in the next couple of weeks. Thank you so much, Jamie. It was a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Accessibility Accelerator, the podcast. Be sure to follow us on all socials and join us in our effort to make the world more accessible and inclusive for all.